Welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Skin Depth Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Austin Black, and today we're going to be going over issue 39 of our newsletter. So without further ado, we'll jump right into our first article, coming to us from JAMA Dermatology. It's entitled, Incidents and Prevalence of Diagnosed Vitiligo according to race, ethnicity, age, and sex in the U.S. And this comes to us from Mastacorius et al. Despite its large psychosocial burden, little is known about the incidence and prevalence of vitiligo across age, sex, and race in the United States. Researchers conducted a cohort study evaluating nearly 3 million people with vitiligo, and that's an incidence, as well as a cross-sectional study of over 1 million patients with vitiligo, and that's prevalence. Overall incidence per 100,000 person years and prevalence was estimated and stratified by age, sex, and race. So what did they find? Age and sex adjusted incidence rate of vitiligo was 22.6 per 100,000 person years. Age and sex adjusted prevalence of vitiligo was 0.16%. Incidence rate was highest among 60 to 69-year-olds when adjusted by sex at 25.3 per 100,000 person years. Prevalence was highest among those 70 and older when adjusted by sex with 0.21%. Age-adjusted incidence ratio was highest among Asian-American patients with 41.2 per 100,000 patient years and age-adjusted prevalence was highest among Hispanic-slash-Latino patients with 0.29%. Some limitations to note, only patients seeking care in an included health systems database were included in the analysis. As not all patients with vitiligo seek care, estimates may underreport the disease's overall burden. So what are our main takeaways from this article? A diagnosis of vitiligo is more common among patients who are older and who identify as Asian American or Hispanic Latino. Our next article comes to us from JAD, and it is entitled Malignancy Rates After 5 Years of Follow-Up in Patients with Moderate to Severe Psoriasis Treated with Geselkumab, Pulled Results from the Voyage 1 and Voyage 2 Trials. And this article is courtesy of Belavuelt et al. Geselkumab, or known as Trimphia, is a human monoclonal antibody that selectively binds and inhibits the IL-23 P19 subunit. It is FDA-approved biologic for the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis. Geselkumab has demonstrated long-term efficacy in the five-year Voyage 1 and Voyage 2 Phase 3 clinical trials, but the long-term malignancy risk has yet to be evaluated. This study examines 1,721 patients treated with gesokimab, or 7,100 patient years, roughly, in the Voyage 1 and Voyage 2 studies and sought to determine the long-term impact of IL-23 inhibition on malignancy risk. Malignancies were classified as either non-melanoma skin cancers or malignancies other than non-melanoma skin cancers. So what did they find? 24 of the Gisselkimab-treated patients had non-melanoma skin cancers, which is a 0.34 per 100 patient years occurrence. 32 
of the gisokumab treated patients had malignancies excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, which is a 0.45 per 100 patient year occurrence. For comparison, the malignancy rate excluding non-melanoma skin cancers uh, in the general psoriasis population is reported as 0.68 per 100 patient years by the psoriasis longitudinal assessment and registry. Malignancy rates excluding non-melanoma skin cancers in gusokiumab treated patients were consistent with those expected in the general U.S. psoriasis population, which have a standard incidence ratio of 0.93. So what are our main takeaways here? Patients with moderate to severe psoriasis treated with gisalkimab for five years had rates of malignancy comparable to the general and psoriasis patient population. Our next article comes to us from the American Journal of Dermatopathology, and it is entitled PRAM, Immunohistochemical Expression and TRET Promoter, Mutational Analysis as Ancillary Diagnostic Tools for Differentiating Proliferative Nodules from Melanoma Arising in Congenital Nevi. And this comes to us from authors Butoko et al. Proliferative nodules are benign tumors that commonly arise in giant congenital melanocytic nevi, or CMN, and are histologically similar to melanoma cells. Preferentially expressed antigen in melanoma are PRAME, or PRAME, immunohistochemistry and telomerase reverse transcriptase promoter mutation, or TPM, Sequencing are useful diagnostic assays to distinguish melanocytic melanoma from benign nevi, which led researchers to study their utility in distinguishing proliferative nodules from malignant melanoma arising in congenital melanocytic nevi. Researchers measured prime expression in proliferative nodules using immunohistochemistry with 21 samples and TPN expression in proliferative nodules using PCR with 9 samples. These results were compared to expression in malignant melanoma arising in congenital melanocytic nevi with two samples. So what did they find? Two of two melanoma cases and two of 21 proliferative nodule cases were strongly positive for PRAME, suggesting that PRAME expression is nonspecific for melanoma. The frequency of strong PRAME expression is significantly higher in melanoma cases compared to proliferative nodules with a p-value less than 0.05, suggesting that PRAME positively favors melanoma. All proliferative nodules and melanoma cases were negative for TPM, suggesting that TPM is not useful in distinguishing proliferative nodules from congenital melanocytic nevi. Some limitations to note are that because malignant melanoma Arising in congenital melanocytic nevi is rare, the sample size is small and yields low statistical power. Our main takeaway here is that PRAME immunohistochemistry is nonspecific for melanoma, but can be used as an ancillary diagnostic tool if differentiating proliferative nodules from malignant melanoma arising in congenital melanocytic nevi. Next, we have an article from the Journal of Dermatologic Surgery entitled Mohs Micrographic Surgery with Digital Pathology Improves Surgical Quality and Efficiency, a Retrospective Cohort Study. And this comes to us from authors Cho et al. 
As the number of global basal and squamous cell carcinoma cases increase, there may be a need to modify Mohs micrographic surgery. Conventional tissue prep and staining methods typically used during Mohs are time-consuming. Might digital scanning and staining be the key to increased efficiency? To compare digital and conventional pathological systems during Mohs, researchers analyzed patients who underwent Mohs with a sample size of 80, and either digital with 57 or conventional with 23 pathologic reports of the frozen sections. Operation time, number of Mohs stages, positive to negative margin switch rates, and difference in long access between tumor size and defect size pre- and post-operatively were measured. What did they find? Time from the pathologic report of the first stage to the pathologic report of the last stage was 0.687-fold shorter in MOS with digital pathology compared to conventional pathology, and that has a p-value of 0.002. The number of MOS stages, on average, in MOS with digital pathology was 0.49-fold less than with conventional pathology, with a p-value of 0.008. The rate of switching from positive to negative tumor margins was 1.990-fold higher with Mohs with digital pathology compared to conventional pathology, with a p-value of 0.044. The difference in long access between preoperative tumor size and postoperative defect sized after achieving all clear margins was 0.227-fold smaller in Mohs with digital pathology compared to conventional pathology, with a p-value of 0.013. Some limitations to note, the study's data was from one institution, had a small sample size, and a short-term follow-up period. Our main takeaways here are that advantages of digital pathology use in Mohs include shorter operation time, fewer stages required, and smaller postoperative defects. Our final article comes to us from the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology and is entitled Effects of Mesotherapy, Introduction of Compound Glycyrrhizin Injection on the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Acne. And this comes to us courtesy of Chen et al. Compound glycyrrhizin, a preparation composed of glycyrrhizic acid, glycine, and cysteine as anti-inflammatory, antiviral, and immunomodulatory properties that have multiple clinical uses. Researchers aim to evaluate the clinical effect of compound glycyrrhizin in the treatment of acne. 108 participants with facial acne were randomly assigned to either a control group treated with topical clindamycin monotherapy or an observational group treated with combined topical clindamycin gel and mesotherapy-induced compound glycyrrhizin injection once weekly. After eight weeks, water retention, inflammatory markers, and acne severity was measured using the Global Acne Grading System, or the GAGS. What did they find? Significant improvement in acne severity with combined clindamycin gel plus mesotherapy with compound glycyrrhizin injection after four weeks and eight weeks of treatment compared to the control was found. P-values less than 0.01 and 0.001 respectively were found for the four-week and eight-week period. 
The combined treatment group had more efficient water retention after treatment with a p-value less than 0.01. And while both treatment groups had reduced acne-related inflammation, there was a greater reduction in inflammatory cytokines in the combined treatment group compared to control with a p-value less than 0.001. Our main takeaway here is that combined topical clindamycin and compound glycyrrhizin injection via mesotherapy may treat acne more efficiently than topical therapy alone. Moving on now to our question portion of the newsletter, we'll start with the New England Journal of Medicine question of the week. And our vignette reads, a 67-year-old man with chronic lymphocytic leukemia presented with a painful rash. On physical examination, there was purple discoloration of the ear along with levodoid skin changes on the cheek and purpura of both calves. A skin biopsy showed leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Laboratory testing was notable for a low complement 4 level. What is the most likely diagnosis? Our options are 1. Bichette's disease, 2. Cryoglobinemic vasculitis, 3. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, 4. Leukemia acutis, and 5. Microscopic polyangiitis. Our answer here is answer choice 2. Cryoglobinemic vasculitis. The patient further explained that the rash appeared when exposed to cold temperatures of 3 degrees Celsius or less. Laboratory testing was notable for elevated IgG lambda and a diagnosis of type 1 cryoglobinemic vasculitis secondary to CLL was made. The patient's symptoms resolved after six weeks of treatment with systemic chemotherapy. Cryoglobulins are immunoglobulins that precipitate at colder temperatures and there are three types of cryoglobinemias. Type 1 cryoglobinemia, which we see in our patient in the vignette, is due to increased monoclonal immunoglobulins, mostly IgM, and typically causes vasculopathy um, only due to hyperviscosity. It is associated with lipoproliferative disorder, CLL, and other blood disorders. Um, types 2 and 3, so type 2 is monoclonal and type 3 is polyclonal. Um, they result in immune complex depositions causing leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Um, the most common testable cause is hepatitis C and other infections. Uh, of note, this case was a more atypical presentation because there was um, leukocytoclastic vasculitis in type 1 cryoglobinemia. This cause is called a type 1 cryoglobinemic vasculitis because it is cryoglobinemia associated with CLL. Going through our other answer choices here, Bichette's disease is a neutrophilic disorder that presents with recurrent oral and genital ulcers as well as various other manifestations including the skin, eyes, joints, and blood vessels. Um, granulomatosis with polyangiitis is a medium vessel vasculitis that presents with skin findings such as ulcerations, subcutaneous nodules, retiform purpura, in addition to systemic findings such as sinus problems, hemoptysis, and some renal injury. Leukemia acutis, um, this would not show up as leukocytoclastic vasculitis on histopathology. And the last one, microscopic polyangiitis, this is another small to medium vessel systemic vasculitis, typically affects the kidneys and lungs as well.
Moving on to our dermoscopy question of the week. The question stem reads, what is likely an important part of this patient's history that predisposed them to development of this lesion? And obviously we have included a picture of the lesion in our newsletter, which I will attempt to describe to you now and then prevent you with the answer choices. So before me, I see a circular ulcerated lesion with what appears to be a targetoid central keratin filled region. Um, that is kind of an orangish yellow in color. Surrounding area is more white in color, displaying a, a white peripheral rim, if you will. Um, though it's hard to see, there could be some linear to irregular shaped vessel, vessels that, that might be appreciated kind of in the periphery of, uh, of the lesion that's presented here. So reminding us of our answers, or let's do our question first and then our answer choices. So the question again is what is likely an important part of this patient's history that predisposed them to the development of this lesion? So our answer choices are one, a genetic disorder, two, HIV, three, diet, and four, ancestry or heritage. So our answer here is two, HIV. So the lesion that we have before us is a squamous cell carcinoma. It's the second most common type of skin cancer after basal cell. Those who are immunosuppressed, such as after an organ transplant or diagnosed with HIV, have a higher likelihood of developing squamous cell carcinoma. Just a couple take home points for the dermoscopic presentation of squamous cell carcinoma. So for the blood vessels, typically we see elongated hairpin vessels maybe some linear to irregular vessels and potentially some dotted vessels. For keratin, keratin pearls are common and present as an orange tan, kind of yellow or white um, ovoid structure, circular structure with a white peripheral rim and sometimes without any real recognizable structure. Uh, it's important to note that we can also see some targetoid uh, hair cell or hair follicles, um, usually filled with kind of a keratin debris as well. A white halo often surrounds these vessels, but can also be seen in some benign lesions, so just be aware of that. And then ulceration might be present in some squamous cell presentations. Um, which is kind of one, one thing to note, don't let squamous cells fool you. They can be pigmented too, and therefore they can also have a brown or gray um, dot or circular pattern to them, usually in a linear arrangement. So that wraps up our episode today. Just one thing I wanna make note of is that we are starting to feature med student research in our newsletters and in our podcast as well. So if that's something you're interested in submitting as maybe a project that you've had published in a journal for us to talk about, definitely take a look at that. There's a link for that in our newsletter. You can find the sign up for our newsletter in the show notes below, or you can read the newsletter directly on our website, which is also linked below in the show notes. Just wanted to say a quick thank you to the members of our Skin Depth team who helped to put this newsletter together, as well as to the authors of these articles. Thank you for all of your hard work and contributing to the field of dermatology research. We appreciate you, and we hope that you all will join us on our next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.